The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. It may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Eye Den, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. Welcome aboard Flight 84 of the Squawk Eye Den podcast, recorded on the 22nd of July, 2021 from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's flight, we are proud to be joined by some fantastic Squawk Ident crew members. Rob D is here. And Captain Roger is here as well. Today we will discuss a rough trip sequence riddled with delays and shenanigans. Rob will tell us about his recent type rating, and we just want to say congratulations to Rob as well. We also bring back a segment (laughs) called In the Kit Bag, where we discuss flashlights. What kind of flashlight do you use for your pre-flights? Please don't tell me you're using your cell phone flashlight. (laughs) That and so much more on this episode of the Squawk Ident Podcast. Now that our pre-flight is complete, let's get ready to push off the gate and start those virtual podcast engines. Flight 84 of the Squawk Ident podcast is officially underway. To help me kick off today's show is superb aviator and Squawk Ident co-host. He is a former international professional racquetball champion, a member of the 9G Club, an AMP and avionics tech, an RC aircraft commander, a boat skipper, commercial drone operator, and currently a full-fledged Airbus pilot for Legacy Airlines. The name of the airline we use here on the show as an alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. He joins us today with a fresh type rating in hand from his man cave in Flower Mound, Texas. Help us in welcoming back to the show our very own Mr. Rob D. Rob, how you doing? Hey, how you doing, Tony? It's good to be back. Uh, And um, I'm... Happy to say I am done with Airbus training. I guess all I have left is IOE, but uh, I am relieved to be uh, <laughs> to have put all that behind me and look forward to getting back to somewhat of a normal <laughs> flying schedule. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. How long were you in training in total? Um, now I look back, it's pretty much four weeks. I mean, I left uh, the seven three on the twenty fourth or so last month, so. Here we are to what the 22nd. So yeah, pretty much uh, a month. It's amazing how fast they can push you through a program like that. So yeah, you, you have been drinking from that fire hose for a long oh, time, my friend. Congratulations. Tell me about it. And it's a completely different type of flying than the 7.3. So yeah, I'm, I can't wait to share some of it with you guys. Yeah. And we look forward to hearing about that a little later 
in the show. Well, also here to help us get Flight 84 of the Squawk It In podcast underway is an exceptional aviator and co-host. He is an award-winning trophy-hoisting tennis champion, a professional CFI, I, and MEI flight instructor, a former freight dog, a former airline pilot, a current King Air flight instructor, a Falcon 2000 commander, a captain, and a corporate operator as well. He joins us fresh from his cousin's wedding and an adventure off the middle fork of the American River where he relived his youth from his days as a river rafting guide. From his palace of chaos, from somewhere in San Diego, California. Please help me in welcoming back to the show an amazing co-host, Captain Roger. Captain, how you doing? It's good to be back. Glad to be alive. I've survived my adventures, and uh, yeah, here we are. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we were a pre-show. We were talking a little bit about what we've been up to, and and you're like reliving my youth and. Yes. You know, running the rapids. <laughs> and I I really enjoyed hearing that because I remember when we first met, you were telling me how, like, what did you do before this? Well, I was a river rafting guide. <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs> so do you still got it? Um, I guess that's kind of depends on, on what got it entails. Um, generally speaking, I'd say yes. Um, the only difference is I'm a little, I'm about, you know, almost two decades removed from it. And I could not imagine at the end of the day, going back and doing the same thing the next day, because my body definitely let me know <laughs> that it was not quite the same. Yeah, no, I you know feel from you. a, from a rafting, reading the water running, you know, that was all, that was all the same, but oh my goodness, physically. Wow. Yeah. Well, you're, and I'm proud to report also that I was much more religious in applying sunscreen than I was in my youth as well. Oh, that good. Very good. So, yeah. Now, now you you did use a sunscreen that is not under the current recall, correct? <laughs> uh, I'm not entirely sure, actually. Oh. Um, I do know that I had some Neutrogena stuff, which I think some of it is some of it fallen is fallen under that, but I don't think so. There's only a couple of brands of that, but yeah. Well, it stopped hey. me from getting burned. Maybe I'll you know get cancer anyway. I'm not sure, but well, you know. So, what SPF do you have to use now, Roger? It's not so much the SPF, it's um, <laughs> just simply applying it would be a, a step in the right direction for me. Okay. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I was not, yeah. you remember that, uh, who was it? I think it's Boz Lerman. I think it was called Sunscreen. It was like in the late 90s, he had that, that commencement speech. And the oh. first thing he's, I don't know, have you guys, oh, it's, it's actually pretty good. But oh, I have to um, look this up. I'm writing this down. Was it uh, Boz what? Boz Lerman. He's a he's a movie director, but it was actually it was a um, I th I think it was a mock commencement speech, but it's actually it's actually legit. It's it's very good. But the very first thing in it is wear sunscreen, ladies and gentlemen of the class of '99. Wear sunscreen. If I could offer you only one tip for the future, sunscreen would be it. I graduated like two years after this came out and I completely just blew off this advice and I wish I had listened to it. Yeah. 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 No, it, wear it, your sunscreen folks. Absolutely. Wear your sunscreen. I, I actually, uh, I buy the spray uh, can and that's like one of the bulkiest things in my suitcase for my, you know, layovers and stuff. And mm -hmm. I apply sunscreen. I used to not apply it as much unless I was going to the beach or doing something outdoors. Sure. But now, like every morning in the hotel, I 
put some on my face and my neck and my arms yeah. because, you know, you're at uh, 37,000 feet, although the aircraft has UV protection through the, through the windows, um, you still cook. I mean, you're, yeah. you're sizzle up too. pretty good. And those, you know, little spots that show up on your hands and arms, you know, when you, when you get older and into your golden years, those, uh, what do they call them? Liver marks? Uh, not very yeah. spots or liver spots. Yeah, they're not very yeah. attractive. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. I have a few of those. Yep. Yep. It's, it's, it is, yeah, Probably some serious stuff, stuff folks. So, an yeah. aviation podcast, sunscreen. Yes. Well, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Must, so highly recommended. You're in this little glass, uh, easy bake oven at whatever altitude you're flying along in GA or, or, or otherwise. Definitely yeah. wear sunscreen and sun protection. Yeah. And we're going to talk yeah, there's a, a little new, bit. Yeah, Neutrogena has a uh, really good, like, post-shave uh, lotion that has, uh, um, like, 15 SPF in it. Yeah. So Does it soften your skin? It's supple. It's very, very supple. Very nice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We are, you know, it's funny how much, you know, growing up, the only man products you needed is uh, a Brute aftershave. (laughs) By Fabergé. By Fabergé or or Old Spice, you know, that's what my dad. My Axe body spray. Axe Axe didn't come out until way later. (laughs) Some of us are younger. Yeah. Now, now you go to like Target or whatever and you go, there's a whole aisle just for men's products. And some of them are like really manly. It's like, this is for my beard conditioner you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know it's which crazy i have a stuff, few of those yeah. when i you know yeah when i don't shave uh but anyway let's let's move forward <laughs> I, I i'm really excited to hear about rob's um uh, type rating adventure uh but before we get into that let me just give you a little bit of background about this last sequence i had and you know there are trips that you will remember where you start off for a four-day trip and it just it starts off with a whammy and it never gets better. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened to me on this last trip. We recorded the show last week, I think it was the 12th, and I had to go on a trip on the 14th, I believe it was. So a couple of days later, actually the 15th, um, with the sign-in was on the 14th. So a red eye out of Ontario. Now I live close to the Ontario airport. And as the listeners know, you know, it's been a huge uh, quality of life improvement for myself. I don't have to deal with LA traffic going and coming to the LAX international airport. On top of that, the company is having this billion dollar renovation of terminal four and five. So legacy airlines is going to be revamped in Los Angeles. And they actually got rid of our crew room, our rest facility, and our flight office. It all got moved. Now it's moved into a temporary location this last week. So it's all kind of new and, you know, oh, where do I go? Where, what's the code for the door? And all these, all these things that are just a headache, especially when you're kind of on a time crunch and you, you want to be efficient. And now you got to go a little earlier to figure out, well, where's the new place and how do I get into the crew room and all these things. So so it's been kind of uh, nice to to be situated in a small airport where I literally park across the street from the terminal and just nice. walk across, and it's a 10-minute car ride, and I don't have to get on a freeway. <laughs> so I know, man. It's been it's really- Quality of life changer. It's been really nice. But 
I had a trip that really tested my resolve last week. Yeah. It started out uh, with a red eye out of Ontario to DFW. And the sign-in time was, I believe, 11.45 p.m. Wow. Now, the nice thing about this is our contract has provisions where if you start a trip before midnight on a certain day, you get paid the minimum pay, the duty rig for that day, which is what, five hours and 15 minutes or something like that? Yeah. So I signed in at 11.45. I got paid five hours for that day. So four day, it's considered a four day trip, not a three day trip. So I get my 20 hours minimum pay guarantee. It's it's a fantastic situation. Unfortunately, the way our contract is over at Legacy, if your flight is scheduled to go past midnight, you don't get paid for that following day until after what is it like 3 a.m. or something like that or or 1 yeah, 2 p.m. yeah 2, 1, 2 a.m. 159 so yeah. so there's a much bigger buffer on the tail end of that um yeah. and so but either way this worked out quite nice for me where i signed in late at night i get there and the airplane had uh, been delayed out of dallas so mm. i was sitting at the gate and we're the last flight to leave the airport. So everyone's waiting for us. The TSA is waiting for us. The newsstand yeah. employee that runs the newsstand that sells water and things like that, they're waiting for us. Everyone's waiting for us to leave. And they can't really go until the last passenger gets on the flight. Yeah. So we were kind of late because the inbound was late. And I and the flight attendants were there. But the captain wasn't there, and I had not met this person. I had not flown with them before. So I figured, well, you know, they haven't signed in yet, but I'm sure they're on their way. So I, I gave the gate agent a heads up. I said, yeah, I'm here. You know, swipe my badge. I'm here, to, ready to go. Haven't seen the captain yet, so um, just kind of keep an eye out for him. And if he doesn't show up here in the next 10, 15 minutes, let me know. I can make some phone calls and see, make sure that they read their schedule correctly. So that already was the first drop in the bucket. Then I get down to the aircraft, and what I saw was something that I had not seen before, at least not personally. I've seen photos of these incidences online. And I actually took a picture, and I'd like to share that. Oh, I think I know what it is. So, oh, this, so I walk gosh. up to the aircraft, and on the jet bridge, and I see that the jet bridge, normally on an Airbus, there's a step up from the jet bridge into the boarding area or the first class galley. There's normally, if you look at an Airbus entryway, there's a black dot painted just below the door, about six inches below the entry door. And that tells the jet bridge operator to park the aircraft or park the jet bridge onto the aircraft so that the dot is visible. Then on the right side of the entry door, on the right side of the jet bridge, there's a little wheel that is on an arm and that gets connected to the aircraft. It touches the aircraft. As the airplane is weight shift, weight yeah. shifted or you know, people are getting off the airplane, so the airplane will get lighter, and then the struts would decompress and they would move up a little bit. Um, there could be bag loading 
or bag unloading from the tail of the airplane, which could cause the nose of the aircraft, which is where the boarding area is, to go up and down. There's fueling of the aircraft. As the fuel is being put on the aircraft, the aircraft moves up and down. So this jet bridge needs to have this auto leveler, which is the little wheel that says, do not touch, don't ever touch it. Um, that's there so that the jet bridge can move up and down. And if you're ever boarding on an aircraft and you're sitting there in a line on the jet bridge and you feel the jet bridge kind of go boop and just move up and down a little bit, that's what's happening is as the aircraft is moving up and down, as is the jet bridge, to prevent this scenario from happening. And you can see that uh, on a photo that I'm sharing that the jet bridge actually either did not move up and down or moved up and was pushing up on the entry door, on the, on the L1 door, the, the entry. So this could be disastrous. So I immediately called the gate agent down. They lowered the jet bridge, and I proceeded to do a, a thorough pre-flight. I did my best to inspect the door to see if anything looked like there was damage. Um, but I'm no mechanic and there, Hey, there's something that I noticed, see something, say something. So I told the gate agent when I, as soon as I came back from my walk around, um, I asked them, I'm like, is that, was it just parked wrong or what's going on? And he's like, no, actually, I think there's something wrong with the jet bridge because I lowered it. And by the time you came back from the walk around, the jet bridge has slowly creeped up. So there's a failure in the system. Mm. Um, and I'm like, well, okay, can you just lower it and then turn it off and so that it doesn't do this? And he's like, no. So he had to call out facilities maintenance to come and inspect the jet bridge. And I started to get the ball rolling to call maintenance operation control to come out and inspect the door of the aircraft because it's definitely a problem. The only yeah. issue is I still didn't have a captain. And so now I'm checking in the computer to see if the captain is signed in. I'm thinking, oh, I, this is not good. So I said, either way, I'm going to have to call maintenance. So I looked up the captain's phone number and I texted him and I said, hey, man, here's a photo of what I see on the aircraft. Just want to make sure you're on your way. If you would like, I will call MOC and have them contact contract maintenance to come out and inspect this because that's what's going to have to happen. Um, no sooner did I send that, he shows up. And he goes, oh, sorry, I went to the wrong terminal. I haven't been here in like 20 years. And, and since <laughs> it's new to fly out of Ontario for the Airbus, a lot of pilots, they get assigned a trip like this and they, you know, it's like, okay, well, how hard can it be? And then they realize, oh, well, there's two terminals in Ontario, Terminal 2 and Terminal 4, and they, they're identical looking. And so you could go to the wrong one. That's what he did. So he had to walk all the way back and... So he showed up and he's like, yeah, go ahead, call MOC um, while I review the AML and give a briefing to the flight attendants. So I call MOC <laughs> and the, the, the guy that answers the phone, he goes, uh, what's going on? I, I told him, I said, yeah, it came to the airplane. The jet bridge was pushed up against the entry door. We'd like to have an inspection performed before we leave to just, you know, make sure that there's a log of this. And he goes, well, do you, is there any visible damage? I'm like, well, no, but the jet bridge was definitely pressed up against it. I witnessed them lower the jet bridge. I would say, other than the, the jet bridge acting as a nose landing gear holding up the airplane by the door, no. <laughs> yeah, it, it left like a little mark on the, on the jet bridge. And he goes, well, if there's no damage, I mean, uh, you know, because otherwise I'd have to 
call out a contract and this is going to delay the flight. Yep. So I put it on speakerphone <laughs> so the captain could hear this. And I'm like, well, we, we want it inspected. Uh, there's definitely, there was contact and we want it inspected. We're not going to go until it's inspected. It's in the logbook. And he goes, well, you know, I, I, and the captain goes, just get contract out here now. Yeah. <laughs> Click. <laughs> they hang yeah. up on me. And I was like, oh, my God, what, what's the big deal? I mean, you know, oh, they have to call yeah. contract maintenance, big deal. So they came out. They did an inspection. An hour later, we departed with no signs of damage. Uh, it was not an issue. It was just kind of a precautionary thing. But it was definitely an issue that needed to be taken care of. My philosophy on this, and I, I'm really interested in to hear what both of you have to say about this, is if you approach an aircraft and you see something that is minor in nature, like, I don't know, there's like a, a one of the Zeus fasteners or a rivet that is not connected or in sequence with another loose Zeus fastener is popped or something, you know, something small, something minor. And the only person that knows about it is you, and you go and tell the other pilot, the captain or the first officer, and you're like, you know, do you want to write this up here, or is this like a nuisance thing, or it's not a safety to flight issue? That's like, ah, well, we'll be back in base tomorrow or tonight. The airplane will be in base. Let's just write it up when we get there, and they can come and, you know, pop it back in or whatever. I have no problem with that personally. Now. The minute a third party is involved or any issue that's related to safety of flight to where if you get ramp checked right now that you're in trouble, then no, there's no question. You write it up. You don't wait. You don't let the other crew take care of it. So you take a delay. Yeah. You know, big deal. Um, yeah. Do you guys feel the same way about that? Or is it like if it's there, you write it up, no questions asked? Good, Roger. Well, for me, I, I definitely can answer that I fall more into your into your camp. Um, I do not write things up unless they needed to be written up. And and to be honest with you, even in the scenario that you just brought up with the door, um, my first course of action probably would not have been to write it up and to call maintenance. Um, obviously, I'd get the jet bridge, and then I probably would have tried to see what was going on when I when we tried to close the door. Does everything line up? Does it actually? Does it actually close normally? And if everything closes normally, you know, and the important thing is just lining it up because the last thing you want to have to happen is obviously jam the door closed. But if everything was operating normally, I probably wouldn't have even contacted maintenance to begin with on that. I'm a very much, you know, a safety of flight and partially some timing. If you find that, you know, and it's still an hour prior to push, then that's something different. If you've got a loose fastener or whatever, and you've got an hour to go to, to push, call maintenance, get them to take care of it. Because I don't like to push things off either. It's more of a, what's the easiest time in order to get this stuff done? When is it most convenient for this to get done expeditiously so that we don't delay any more flights than we need to? Um, and whether that's at the, at the flight at the time or going back to the base for the next one. And so that's kind of the camp that I fall into. Obviously, if it's a safety of flight, that's a, that's a no that's a no-go thing. If it's going to be, I mean, we always say as pilots, we get there first. I'm very much, you know, an, an advocate for that. And if it's something that's, that I think might affect the safety of a flight, that's something that needs to get checked out. Now, the cosmetic stuff, things that are not safe, I'm rather willing to get it done later. Mm -hmm. 
if that is a more if that's a better option given the circumstances at the time yeah and rob what do you think uh yeah i agree with both you guys i safety of flight is definitely the priority um time is is it doesn't even come into factor for me it's probably third or fourth on my list on all that stuff so um, I think you did the right thing. I, I probably would have just gone directly to maintenance. I wouldn't have even let the captain know until he showed up, you know, via phone. I mean, I'd just write it up, put his number on it, and and just go with it. It doesn't because it doesn't matter. That's, you're 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 the PIC until he shows up. So, huh. um, I like yeah, you, you just call it, write it up. Um, the the thing I I have, you know, I I spent twelve years of aircraft maintenance in the Air Force. Um, so I have a little, uh, little, little different approach on a lot of things than than they do here at Legacy or, or at most other places. So I, if I see like a fastener that's loose, especially forward of the intake of of a motor, mm-hmm. um, I always call because you never know if that little fastener that you know that five cent fastener is going to go through the motor. Right, cause right. you know millions of dollars of damage, or just fall onto the taxiway at some point, and um, um, you know get picked up by another airplane. Um, but you know, use your discretion. I mean, that there's there's times where they're just loose, and you know, it, you you can like rub your finger over it and see if it's just kind of rattling in there, mm-hmm. and if it's like dangling and falling, getting ready to fall out. Obviously, you know that's something that should be addressed right away. But um, and then that door, you know, because you don't know how much pressure was exerted on it. And you can only ascertain how much you can only tell at that time how much is on it. You didn't know how much the plane shifted before you even got there right. or the jet bridge shifted. So the, uh, you know, and, and you can probably close the door and have all the proximity switches line up and it's showing closed, but from a pressurization and rigging point of view that you know that could be something could be damaged there so yeah. or the slide could be damaged and you can't see it because it's on the bottom mm-hmm. so you know there, there's a number of reasons why I'd, I'd call maintenance out for that when we had that happen in mexico when we were uh, on the 73 it was like about a year ago deplaning the aircraft and the uh, jet bridge was set correctly initially and then you can just hear it going Krink! and it shift and then 10 seconds later, ring, it shift. And I'm looking out there, I'm like, this thing's kind of going rogue on us. And next thing you know, it was riding up on the door and it kept going, ring, ring, ring. And we in the door, when you stood out there, you could see the door was kind of cockeyed like that. Ugh. And so we canceled, canceled everything there and uh, ended up spending the night in Cancun. Not Cancun, um, Puerto Vallarta. <laughs> because because that airplane uh, was taken off the schedule, but and there was another rogue incident a long time ago with a jet bridge at uh, at a uh, uh, sandpiper, where the the jet bridge actually I was the captain on this one. We uh, we got in early from like Midland or something like that. Landed in DFW at like seven in the morning, and when I parked the parked the plane, set the parking brake, we're waiting for the jet bridge to come up to the plane. The lady was having just a heck of a time trying to get the thing to do what she wanted it to do. And it's like lurching and then it'd go back and then you'd see the wheels shift and it lurch and the bell and took her a few minutes to get the get the jet bridge up to the plane. 
long story short, when she got there, she she pokes her head and she's like, God, I was having a hard time getting the Jeffridge up to the airplane. And I kind of nod. I was like, yeah, it looks like you're having a hard time. But, you know, everything good? She's like, yeah. So everybody got off the airplane. We went up, got a little breakfast. We we're doing a turn. Came back down the jet bridge. And as me, the FO, and the flight attendant were walking down the jet bridge, you hear the bell from the jet bridge go off. And all of a sudden, the jet bridge just starts going, you know, side to side. Oh, my gosh. Boosh, 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 boosh. And we were just kind of bracing ourselves. And next thing you know, it just stops after like 10 or 15 seconds. So I kind of hustled down to the bottom to see what, you know, if there was somebody driving the jet bridge and there was nobody there. (laughs) (laughs) So I look outside and I see the rampers kind of just, you know, clearing the area. And I and and, you know, start looking at the at what happened. The jet bridge pushed the nose of the ERJ over about five feet off the center line and still had pressure on it. So it was in a list like the right wing was like three feet off the ground and the left wing was 12 feet or so off the ground and it was still had pressure on it. So I picked up the phone call of my phone right away and called the chief pilot office and and got a hold directly to the chief pilot. And I was like, hey, I don't care what you're doing right now, <laughs> if you're in a morning meeting or anything, but you need to come out to B-36 ASAP. So he's like, all right, I'll be right out there. So he comes running down the jet bridge, and he's like, holy mackerel, look at this. Yeah. You know what he does? He looks in the window. He's like, were you in the cockpit when this happened? I'm like, no, sir. He's like, okay, yep, parking brake set. It's not your aircraft. It's the gate agents. It's not your responsibility. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go get my stuff out of the airplane because I'm going to assume this plane's out of service. (laughs) He's like, yep. (laughs) Anyway, that was a long story on that one. but No, uh, that was great. It was good stuff. (laughs) Uh, And occasionally they have, you know, the the agents uh, at all these airports. Obviously, Roger, you don't have to deal with this very much. The the, the jet bridges are, uh, you know, can be a little temperamental sometimes. So. time to t- you know since we fly so much we see it a lot but uh time to time these jet bridges don't work properly and you know they have to call facility maintenance down to yeah. either reset them or whatever so they're, they're complicated they're very very heavy yeah uh, people don't yeah. realize how heavy and how industrial yeah. this, these and things they're difficult are. to drive too because of the way they work yeah i mean it's just the amount of the times that those are used on a daily basis and if you really look at it when you're deplaning or or when you're boarding an airplane of of your guys' side think of the weight that those mm. things have to be able to to support and not move up and down because of right. the picture that you know you yeah. just showed tony i mean yeah you, you want to talk about a piece of equipment that needs to be yeah. industrial grade yeah um, and to, and to add to that they they also you know you go to like to some of the international terminals you know, we'll pull in with a 7-3 or an Airbus and, you know, the jet bridge is configured for that. And then you can pull away and then next thing you know, a 777 or, or you know, an, uh, another 787 can pull in. And that jet bridge needs to translate, translate up, you know, 10, 15 feet or extend out, you know, 50, 100 feet to, you know, to another door. So those things are, are quite, uh, you know, quite complicated to 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 be able to do all that stuff they're kind of like transformers <laughs> yeah more than meets the eyes yeah they really are <laughs> you know um and then yep. and i like the air the the air stairs um Definitely. because you know i get it you have to have jet bridges and and mm. in the modern 
world with the aircraft that have the capacity that they do. Um, and you know, the, you keep people out of the elements and everything, but I really like air stairs. <laughs> I love oh, it when I we agree. go to Mexico and they just roll up the stairs yeah. and you just walk yeah, down. It's so and it's easy. Like, hey, yeah. I'm here. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Come fly some business jets. Hey, yeah, you yeah. got the stairs, stairs all the time. Built in on the, the door. <laughs> the airplane has stairs built on the right. door. Cool. Yeah, I might have to take you up on that invitation here, you know. Um, but yeah, so it was it was <laughs> a really interesting start to yeah. the trip. And I really wish that that was the only issue. <laughs> that was yeah. the first 45 yeah. minutes to an hour. Yeah, I was going to say, and it's crazy too, because for you on a red eye, you know, even though you're just starting out, you know, this is the beginning of a long beginning of the ending of a long day for you, just physically and mentally, you know, you try yeah. to get as much rest and everything as you can before you get there. But let's face it, 11 o'clock at night, you know, you're, you're ready to go to bed. Yeah. I mean, know? I, you know, even though I, I've learned to take a nap as a matter of fact, and we're going to get into that here in a mm -hmm. bit as well, I'm doing the exact same trip tonight. So oh, after really? this recording, I'll be, uh, wrapping it up and start winding down this afternoon for a nice Already, couple yeah. hours of, of sleeping. But what happens is when do. you're delayed on a red eye, your, 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 your mentality is, okay, we're going to push off of here at midnight. We're going to get to where we are at six in the morning. Hopefully we can get there before the sun comes up, get to the hotels to trick our psyche that it's still nighttime and you can go straight to sleep. Um, and so now you're delayed an hour or two. Now you're like, oh, God, now the sun's going to be in my eyes as I'm flying east and, uh, you know, all these <laughs> factors. And you're like, okay. So we ended up, these red eyes are usually like an 11-hour layover. And, and then that same evening, you go back and fly out. Well, of course, that got, you know, eaten up into. So our, our layover ended up being a minimum rest layover, which is exactly 10 hours with the new FAR-117. I, sh I shouldn't say new, but with FAR-117 for airlines, 10 hours is the minimum rest. So yeah. we got to the airport there in DFW, had our minimum rest. And then that evening, we took off and went from DFW to Savannah. Now, with the crew meals being... I'm just no way around it. Substandard oh, at Legacy they're not Airlines. Meals. They're not meals. They're they're they're, they're snacks. I'd prefer a bag of chips. I mean, they're they're yeah. really bad. It's 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 embarrassing. Yeah. Um, everyone's talking about it online. Or Roger has to hear us complain about this, but it's horrible, dude. Well, it, when you don't have the bad. time to just put the credit card yeah. down and go get a meal, have it delivered, right? Know, Uber Eats. No, yeah. you can't do that. We're we're go go go. Which we re yeah received some guidance from uh, you know our our union saying Don't hey. You guys have Wi Fi on the airplane? Just put a put an order in. <laughs> yeah. On the inbound flight. Sure. And have yeah. them deliver it to B B thirty seven. Roger yeah, uh, the awesome. uh, the the cockpit crew or I'm sorry the flight deck crew is not allowed yeah, to uh, access anymore. the uh, Wi Fi for personal use. Can and you pick up the intercom phone called flight attendants? <laughs> Say hey while you're hey. back there. Doing Can you nothing. just hop on the phone real Here's quick? my credit card number. Why don't you go sure ahead you and order us some? <laughs> That's why you better ask to make sure if they want anything. <laughs> there you go. Like, you guys are highly paid professional like, what pilots. What is the Manolo Blahnik uh, thing ordered online? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> just saying. <laughs> so, so we ended up you know, having this minimum layover, and then you have to get to the airport a little earlier. To, to at least pick up a meal because you're hungry. You know, you've been sleeping most of the day. 
Uh, and I don't know, everyone I've talked to says the same thing. On a red eye, the next day you get about five hours of rest and that's about it. The body clock says, hey, you're supposed to be up now. And, and so that's, what, that's exactly what happens. DFW to Savannah uh, the next mm. day or that evening. And it was a relatively good flight. Nothing really major happened. I thought, okay, that's it. You know, we got rid of our one issue for the trip. And we get to Savannah a little late. And of course, downtown Savannah is absolutely gorgeous. People everywhere. Uh, the hotel was full. And the next morning, I got up at a relatively decent hour, went for a run along the river front, uh, found the Black, Rif the Black Rifle Coffee Company, mm. its main store. And I was like floored because I've been following them online. And uh, I got to go in and order myself a Black Rifle coffee. Got a T-shirt. I mean, it, it was yeah. pretty cool place. They've it's done, good. yeah, they've done it right, you know. And part of the proceeds yeah. goes to uh, veteran organizations yeah. to help with uh, veterans of our armed services. So I'm all for that. Uh, had a good day. Had met up with some of my crew members. Went for lunch. Took a walk around downtown Savannah. A lot of uh, architecture and history there. Uh, and then proceeded to the airport for an afternoon flight, and the inbound flight was delayed. So, so nice. okay, what am I going to do? Well, we're going to sit there in the gate area where all the other passengers are, or I can go and grab myself a nice scoop of ice cream from Leopold's, famous ice cream from oh, Savannah, yeah. rated third best ice cream in the U.S., so, wow. of course, I had a cup of the uh, coffee chocolate chip <laughs> and <laughs> sat there, you know, pulled my mask down, and I was sitting there eating my ice cream, and people were looking at me like, well, this guy's really enjoying his ice cream. <laughs> yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> so we took off out of Savannah, a little bit behind schedule, but we caught back up in DFW. And this is where it all kind of starts to fall apart yet again. So DFW. I grab my trusty flashlight and I go for a walk around. What I found was a tire that definitely needed some attention. So, oh, man, look at that. When you do a walk around, there's all kinds of criteria as Rob is like, fresh out of the schoolhouse, you know, exactly what to look for in a walk around, you know, mm. first thing you do is you do this like kind of a, what we call a global assessment of the aircraft. You know, you just make sure that the chocks are in, that uh, it's not going to roll on you, you know, that uh, there's power connected to the aircraft and there's no like physical damage. And as you walk around the airplane, one of the main things that you're checking are the tires, the brakes, any fluid leaks, any, anything that just doesn't look right. And for those, uh, I'll put a, a link in the show notes with a picture uh, that can't see it for the audio version of the podcast, but uh, there is a tire here that has steel cords showing on the inside edge of the number one tire, which is the right outer, all the way around. Mm. And so I took a photo of it. Uh, Not sure they're steel, but they're, they're definitely, that's definitely cord. Yeah. Well, they're yeah. definitely oh, metal. Boy. <laughs> oh, they were? Yeah, there's metal cord. Oh, I didn't know they used metal. Yeah. Okay. Wow. On um, these uh, Michelin uh, tires for the Airbus. Yeah. And so I took a photo, came back inside, and showed it to my captain. I said, Captain, uh, this is what it looks like. And 
And he says, well, I know that there is a certain amount of steel cords that are acceptable to be visible on a tire, and it could still be good for so many more cycles. Uh, but that looks like it's excessive. Let's contact maintenance and have them come out. Okay. Being in base, they say, yeah, no problem. We'll come out. We'll take a look. And sure enough, uh, within 10 minutes, there was a maintenance personnel sitting there. And he says, yeah, man, uh, you're allowed to go with, uh, I forget the, the how many. 25% of the. Yeah, 25 or 30% of the circumference of the, of the tire yeah. can show some, some steel cords, but with no more than a depth of so many microns. So I don't know. So he goes, but man, this is, this is like 90% of your tire <laughs> is showing steel yep. cords. So we're going to do a tire change. Okay. Captain says, how long do you think? And he's like, oh, it shouldn't take more than, uh, well, with the considering uh, the shift change right now with maintenance, probably about 90 minutes. 90 minutes? Really? For a tire change? He goes, yeah, it's, you know, by the time the, the new crew has to clock in and the old crew's there, it's not enough time for the old crew to get started and. And whoever starts it has to finish it. Like, okay. Of course, you can't board the aircraft because you're going to be jacking it up. Mm -hmm. So the crew members can stay on board. So I got everything ready for the pre-flight. We kind of talked about the route, the weather, and that took all five minutes. And then as I'm sitting there, I could feel the airplane getting jacked up. And so it's, yeah. I'm like, ah, oh, they're hey, working on it. Quick, quick, uh, quick, uh, um, Tidbit of useless information. Do you know why the crew members can stay on board? No way. Because you're part of the basic operating weight of the airplane. So if you put passengers on in bags, that's not part of the. the ah. So they can only uh, they can only work with a basic weight of the airplane when they're doing maintenance on it like that. Oh, so no bags and no passengers. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. But they'll usually just stop with the bags if they've already started loading them, and they won't work anymore because it's, you know, I'm sure there's like a, like everything, there's a buffet, buffer. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Lots of, anyway, that's, yeah, that's so, what I was, so we, that's, that's the, what I learned. And, and I thank you for that. That's actually, I didn't know that. So, so that's what happened. We felt the airplane go up, and about 10 minutes later, we felt the airplane go down. I was like, that was quick. And then the maintenance guy comes in and he goes, oh, uh, sorry, guys, uh, the jack broke. We need to go and get another jack from the hangar. Oh, <laughs> so, shit. Yeah. Hour later, airplane starts to go up. They change the tire. It comes back down. So, yeah, we departed uh, DFW on day two, <laughs> two hours delayed because of the steel cords showing on the tires. I put a new tire on. We were good to go. Made it to Portland, Oregon late. And. Wow got to the hotel, and now they had to delay our flight the next morning because we didn't have the required minimum rest period. So that turned into another 10-hour layover. And the last day, day, day four technically, uh, was back to Dallas, Dallas, Ontario, and I thought, well, okay, what can go wrong? <laughs> So we get make it to Dallas, and we had going to Dallas again. Yeah, Dallas again. <laughs> had an aircraft swap, and now we noticed that we're the last flight of the day, and so it was like a was it ten o'clock departure? Yeah, originally it was scheduled for a ten forty departure, and well, we had like two hours, so I went, grabbed a bite to eat, sat down at one of their wonderful eateries at DFW, and. Uh, I look over, 
and I see, ding, your flight's delayed. One hour. Inbound flight's delayed. Like, okay, so I go in there, work my magic, and find out that the aircraft that we're waiting for is in Orlando and is not taking off. And there's a little bit of weather, but you know, from what I can tell, I don't see why there's a delay. Uh, 20 minutes later, ding, your flight's delayed. Two hours. Like, oh, God. Geez. Now it's like a, you know, this is going to go into day five. So the captain calls me. He goes like, hey, man, what do you want to do? Are you tired? Are you fatigued yet? <laughs> I'll stay in Dallas one more night. I'm like, well, I, I mean, I'm sitting here having a nice tea and, and you know, just on the computer. It's up to you. Uh, I, I feel good. He's like, yeah, I feel good, too. I, you know, I, I think we're good. He goes, I'm going to make some phone calls. We're going to find another airplane. Because, uh, you know, like, hey, that's a great idea. He's got some pull. Don't you think they're doing that already? So he calls. Uh, are they? <laughs> no. <Nah. laughs> that's what I, <laughs> that's, that's, I'm like, whose job are you doing? And he calls just, and I don't know what he, played. I don't know what he told them, but uh, yeah. he calls me back and he goes, they said that they're working on it and leave them alone. <laughs> I was like, okay. So <laughs> there we get to ding, you're delayed two and a half hours. I'm like, oh yeah, no, I, I'm not going to be departing Dallas at like, after a, after two nights of minimum rest, oh, delays yeah. after delays, I'm like, this is this is not going to work for me. And just then we got boom, you have a new aircraft. Your delay is now only an hour delay. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. Mm. So I go to that gate. We're waiting for the inbound flight. It's coming from LA. It's already departed. I mean, okay, we're on. The, we're back on. We're back on track. Here we go. So I'm sitting there in the area, and I kind of move to the side. It's late at night, so it's not very crowded. And I move to a different gate next door where there's not many passengers and I sit there and I'm just waiting for the inbound airplane. And there's one other passenger sitting about five, six seats behind me. And he comes up to me and he's clearly been drinking something. <laughs> he's, he walks up to me and he's a, he's a SoCal boy. You know, he's got the Lakers jersey on. And he's like, Hey, Hey man, what gate? I'm like, um, excuse me. What gate? I said, oh, over here, uh, you know, whatever, uh, A, A12. He's like, okay. He goes, Ontario? Said, yeah. He goes, oh, cool, cool, cool. You driving? I'm like, yeah, uh-huh. He goes, cool. Hey, you smoke pot? What? <laughs> I, I look at him like, excuse me? He goes, you, you smoke pot? He actually asked you that? He asked you that following you driving yeah. question? <laughs> you, sm you, you smoke pot? I went, I'm, 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 I'm driving the airplane. Uh, no, I don't smoke pot. He's like, you do cocaine? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I look around just, and I'm he's like, getting better. <laughs> I'm on camera here. <laughs> you do cocaine, man. And I'm like, no. He goes, don't lie to me. <laughs> oh, I'd and be I'm, like, I'm going to go get a piss test right now. Yeah. And I'm right like, okay. Now, this guy, he's like, and he's like, he gives me like the fist. He's like, no, man, I'm just messing with you, man. I'm just messing with you. Yeah. So I had this like 20 minute conversation with this guy who is, I'm like, oh, what else am I going to do? I might as well be entertained. Yeah. Oh, that's funny, yo. <laughs> he goes, you got a, you got a sister, man? <laughs> I was oh like, okay, God. I got to go. <laughs> I got to go get ready. That plane's going to be here any minute. He's like, he goes, hey, do I have time for a beer? And I'm like, I tell you what, if you find a place that's open for a beer, I think there's one in a different terminal somewhere. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> I'll get lost on the way back. We'll be boarding in 40 minutes, but uh, go for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, it was no so. issue. He was just messing with me. And, yeah. and so, <laughs> yeah, you do cooking. 
Dude. Wow. So, yeah, hour and a half delay out of Dallas, uh, landed uh, the next day, uh, but unfortunately it wasn't past 1 a.m. So, uh, yeah, tough trip. And I was thinking, ah, welcome, Rob, to the Airbus. <laughs> I know. I, I've been reading um, all the social media platforms with, uh, you know, what's going on in, in our in our company and industry. And it's just, it, it's, oh man, it's just, there's a lot going on, you know, with schedule changes and maintenance and just, uh, it's just, it's hard to, you know, I don't know, just find a, a normal sequence where you go to work, you take off on time, you land on time, there's no drama and, and everybody's just, you know, kumbaya along the way. So yeah. it, it, whether it's the meals, the masks, you know, the delays, the maintenance and all that, um, yeah, it's just, it's tough, man. It's tough. Yeah. And it's been nice to be in the schoolhouse for a month, kind of, you know, separated from all that stuff for, <laughs> for three, for about, you know, four weeks. So I didn't have to deal with it. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, Roger, you've, been removed from the airline industry for a while, dealing with your corporate uh, flying. And it's a completely different caliber of client. Do you ever deal with passengers that say weird things or things that happen to you while you're on a flight line that you're like, really? <laughs> I don't, but that's just because of the type of flying that, that I do, because I fly part 91, which is basically private owners only there's no you, you don't hold yourself out um we fly the same people um on a daily monthly yearly basis i think that that and, and so we're the same pilots they're the same passengers we all kind of know the score because mm -hmm. it's the same people every time i think that when you get different people and people that maybe don't do this all the time and in the 135 world where you do more charter where you get different people on the planes all the time you're much more likely to get um to to get more unknowns um than than i do i've been fortunate enough that i've never had to do the 135 passenger operations yeah um and yeah like i say with, when we're doing owner flights it's the same people all the time usually a known quantity yes there's some alcohol and they'll start singing and they're dancing or doing all kinds of you know things maybe a little outside the norm but i've never been asked if i do cocaine <laughs> i mean <laughs> i can't say i've had anything like that happen at the airlines or otherwise yeah i mean I, that <laughs> that really threw me for a loop i was like, i i can wait, only what? imagine <laughs> Sitting here, and I'd be like looking, looking around, like, yeah. okay, "Whoa, who's yeah. watching? And who's, what is happening right now?" Yeah, remember, remember a few years ago when they we, um, when the a bunch of um, alcoholic pilots made the headlines. Um, I, you know, there's always one every few years or something that makes uh, the newspapers. But yeah, you know, there was one or two that it was like ten years ago or so that, from what I can remember, um it was kind of a hot topic going around and I, I was in Columbus, Ohio, getting ready to board to go back to Dallas. Actually they're boarding. See, I was the FO 
And some lady poked her head in the cockpit and said, you two haven't been drinking, have you? It just as a joke. And the, of course, the captain took it very seriously. And he's like, you know what? I don't feel comfortable with that. I am removing myself from flight. I'm going to go get a, a you know, drug and alcohol test right now. Mm-hmm. And you know, just to prove that I didn't show up to work. And I'm like, you know what? That's probably a great idea in light of the situation. And so the flight was canceled because yeah. somebody's remark. But, just stuck their head it, up there and made an off-the-cuff yep. remark. And then we ended up ferrying the airplane back <laughs> about six, five, six hours later. So <laughs> Yeah. I remember that happened so. to me as well at Sandpiper. Um, and it was the captain who immediately turned around and said, oh, are you serious? And she's like, uh, and he goes, she didn't respond. And he goes, well, it was okay. So he made a PA, just like you said, Rob. Uh, he goes, well, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, uh, a passenger has accused me of uh, drinking. And uh, unfortunately, when that happens, that means that both flight crew members need to go and take a blood alcohol test. Those results usually take uh, quite some time, uh, considering we're not at a base. Uh, this flight will probably be canceled. Uh, I hope that uh, they rebook you on a on a flight as soon as possible. But uh, yeah, we will be removing ourselves from the flight because of uh, the accusation. And the, the, oh, I was kidding. I was kidding. He said, said, now, well, it's too late. So sure enough, that flight got canceled. Like you said, Rob, it's not a joke. It's not a joke because our, our, we can go to federal prison um, for, for flying under the influence and, and anybody that accuses us of that. Now, is that a little bit overboard? Sure. But it's to prove a point. And, and it, it unfortunately, well, it, I wouldn't say it's to prove a point. It's, 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 you never know how literally people take things, you know, uh, it, like they could take things totally out of context, you know, and that's how, you know, that's how a lot of the media works. You know, they, they, they have a comment and then they use that comment and they take it totally out of context. And then they say, well, he said this, you know what I mean? And so if somebody passenger pokes their head in the cockpit or anything, and you know, right before you're about to launch and, you know, jokingly ask you something, you have to really take that seriously because they, you know, you never know who they're working for. Right. Or, you know, everybody has a, uh, like you said, a movie studio in their pocket, or they could even have be mic'd up and you not even know that. So yeah, it's dangerous, you know? I mean, do I sound paranoid? I'm not paranoid. I'm just CYA. You know, I've, I've got a, um, I, you know, I worked hard to get all my ratings and certificates and yeah, you know, at the end of the day, that's you, what we do. The, we protect our certificate. And then you have a bad day in the cockpit and you have a hard landing or, you know, something goes wrong with the airplane. And three hours ago, this guy just asked you if you were drinking or something like that. Now they're like, oh, man, this guy must have been because he crashed a landing or, you know, it's like, dude, yeah, that sucks. Or or my favorite scenario, and we've kind of talked about this in, in previous shows, is, you know, you do everything right. Okay, some some idiot back there joked around with you and it's like, oh, yeah. 
And so you do everything right. You get your taxing into the gate and some ramper or some uh, guy in a tug comes, doesn't see you and clips your wing. And now there's a fuel leak and a big emergency. And, and so now you guess what happens to both pilots? They go and get blood alcohol test, right? Um, guess who's going to be on the six o'clock news going, well, you know, I, I suspect that they were drinking. I even made a comment to them before yeah. the flight and oh, they yeah. went anyway. And even yeah. though it couldn't be further from the truth, but sensationalism yeah. wins at the end of the day. <laughs> Definitely, man. Yep. You know, we've been talking about, uh, you know, playing jokes on flight crew and how we take things very seriously. There's certain things that I think, and we all agree that we just don't joke around about. Uh, one, we don't joke around about alcohol or drugs in the flight deck. Um, that just, it's not something that is funny to us. Uh, like Rob said, we've worked very, very hard to accomplish all these ratings and certificates and to have it all in question by a passenger who's trying to make a funny, it's not, it's not good, it's not respected, it's not welcomed. Um, the other thing we don't joke around about is uh, money. <laughs> you know, uh, you pay me what we're due. Uh, we don't joke around about money. Fly uh, the contract. You know, the contract is there for a reason so that it keeps everybody honest and it protects us. Um, and the other thing we don't joke around about is like fire. And we don't say like fire bomb or anything like that. You know, we don't joke around about that kind of stuff. It's, it's part of being a professional aviator. Passengers, unfortunately, don't always get that. And recently what made headlines was a an article that I saw this morning. Rob and I were talking about this earlier. Uh, from viewfromthewing.com, there was an article that was posted on July 20th from Gary Leff, an American Airlines uh, gate agent fires a customer. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. I was like, how does that work? And there's a little video. Now, I guess what happened was the customer was being rude uh, towards the gate agent. Supervisor was called over. And how he handled the situation is to be very much respected. He didn't uh, go overboard. Now, what he said probably got him at least a slap on the wrist because he was a little disparaging towards another airline. But I have some audio on that, and I'd like to play that for you. Second of all, you called my employee a bitch. Completely uncalled for, inappropriate, you're not going to travel. We don't tolerate that crap with us at all. So you can find another carrier to fly. I'd suggest hear it. Nope. If you acted appropriate and weren't disrespectful, then I would let you travel. But unfortunately, you called my employee a bitch. Did you call my employee a bitch? You didn't. I was standing there. No, I did not. So the other people I heard you say it as well. So yeah, she also had two children. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, don't lie because you you already did that once when you took the mask off and put a new one. Yours on. So it goes on for a little while longer, and he never raises his voice more than that. And I, I gotta say, that's kind of hard to do. I could never do a gate agent's job. <laughs> this is oh, not that's a tough job, man. I could not do it. <laughs> I can't do it. Uh, I'd be arrested. Mm. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, kudos to him though for standing up for the work group. His company. Yeah. You know, his company over there at American. You know, they I got a lot of respect for that airline. Uh and it, when I hear things like this, that they've defended themselves against an unruly passenger who was, oh, of course, now that she realized that she wasn't going to fly, oh, I didn't say that. It's like, well, it's the minute you get kids involved, there were kids in the area, they heard you cuss. No, uh-uh, you're out of here. <laughs> so yeah. good job to them. You did good. Now let's let's move forward. Rob, I'm really excited to hear about your type ride event now we talked about on the onset of the show how for four weeks you've been drinking from the fire hose you've been over at the planet yep. killer base as we like to call the death star area <laughs> the where death star the yeah. death star where we train house the schoolhouse yep. yeah um so you went through those experiences and you you actually gave us a little bit uh, on the pre-show about some of the experiences that you had for your type ride. Now we know that you were paired up with another first officer for this training event. So first officer, mm -hmm. first officer. So in the simulator and in the, in the training, uh, the trainer, you mm -hmm. would have to spend half your time in the right seat doing all the duties that you were being trained to do. And the other yep. time you were in the left seat, uh, going through the motions of what the captain would be doing or the pilot monitoring would be doing from the left seat. So right. actually, I believe that there's good in that, that there is. you have to switch your motor skills and you're not just doing muscle memory and you're actually physically and mentally really thinking about what you're supposed to be doing. I think that yeah. is a better learning experience. Some people say that's negative learning because I'm not in the left seat. Why should I be sitting in the left seat? I should be in the right seat for everything. Um, and yeah. it, there can be points made to that as well. But um, I honestly think that that's a little bit more difficult to switch seats like that. When yeah. it came time to getting your, since we have AQP, your, your maneuvers validation, your LOE, and your RAD, that's that two to three day event is really what consists of what we would call a check ride. Yep. How did your experience go in that process? Oh, overall, it was great. Um, the, uh, the, uh, instructors, the check airmen and, you know, the, the sim instructors and the ground school instructors at our schoolhouse are the best in the, in the, in the industry. It, they're really good. And I really mean that they, they do a really good job. They have a lot of information that they have to, um, teach over a four week period. And, um, they do it in a really good, you know, building block style of, uh, of learning. So, um, basics, and then you build upon what you learned yesterday and you continue on. Um, but like you said, there's a lot of information and the student has to put it, put forth their time with studying and, and, um, doing a lot of, uh, rote memory and, and chair flying and stuff like that. So as long as you do your part um, and they do their part, which they did, um, it all comes together at the end. So the last three days, like you spoke, were the you know AQP versions of a check ride. So it started off with the maneuvers validation, which basically sum it up in a, in a, in a nutshell, you go out and perform the maneuvers that are required uh, that you you know, like uh, single engine takeoff and landings, um, uh, wind shear, um, ground proximity warning stuff, uh, 
TCAS resolution alerts. So you go through all these scenarios that you um, have to demonstrate proficiency in. And um, so that day's uh, that lasts about two hours each person. So me and my uh, my sim partner were paired up for that, and we're both FOs. So he had a like you said, he he was captain for me, and then we switched seats two hours later, and then I was captain for him. Um, so powered through that. That was pretty fo- straightforward. Great great event. You know, really uh, solidifies how much you uh, you've absorbed <laughs> over the last four weeks in just demonstrating that you can do the maneuvers without any coaching or or anything so that was nice next day is the loe which is line oriented um uh evaluation right so uh so basically it's it's again it's 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 training but it's checking so they simulate a flight from point a to point b and they want to you know see how you handle all the scenarios with headings, intercepting radials, holdings, malfunctions, and stuff like that in a in a flight, in a flight from point A to point B. Um, so treat it like a real flight, like there's real people behind you, and go up and do it. So again, that was straightforward piece of cake. Uh, there's a couple couple of uh, you know hiccups along the way that uh, there's a lot of things that they they introduce to you even at that at that point that you haven't seen. Um, in your whole training because it, none, it doesn't really pertain to the training. Uh, it's just something that you just need to see when it happens and, and you go out there and do it like the box stuff, up links and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, that day was pretty straightforward. And then the last day, which is the what they call the loft, line-oriented flight training, which is, uh, again, uh, simulating a flight from point A to point B and then turning around, doing a turn and going back to you know another airport. Uh, which is like a typical day on the flight line for us, uh, except this time they're really hands off and they you just go out and do it. Um, so since uh, my sim partner wasn't a captain, I had to have a seat fill, which is a um, training term for somebody who is a captain <laughs> who wasn't training with me, who's sitting in and filling the captain's role mm-hmm. um, uh, in my in my loft. So this particular pilot is a Czech airman. So he's another instructor at the schoolhouse, and he was hired to uh, sit and be my captain for my check for my uh, my loft, my basically check ride, like we've been saying. Yeah. And uh, so there was a little uh, little uh, conversation that my training, uh, my seat fill check airman, and the uh, the actual check airman that was running the show, who was actually checking the event, uh, had when we went through our performance um, review, uh, performance meaning the uh, the airplane's weight, takeoff weight uh, pertaining to the runway and, and single engine climb and climb limited and all that stuff. So we had a runway change and um, we also had uh, a, a weight change and we were 2,000 pounds heavier than what we planned, mm-hmm. which for our, our plans, our our, uh, our planning purposes we have to redo our performance and get new new performance numbers so i was as i reviewed it and discovered that we were heavier so i went down into our the mcdu in the airplane um and was getting ready to extract the information out of the out of the uh, box with a new tps and the, the guy running the show the check airman running the show he's like hey wait a minute what are you doing i was like well i'm requesting a new tps uh, from the box 
And he's like, well, all you have to do is just uplink the speeds. And I was like, but our, we're heavier than our plan. I mean, we're heavier than our assumed takeoff weight. We need to get a new TPS, and that's method one in the uh, in our blue pages. And he goes, no, no, just uplink the uh, the 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 runway change, put the new runway in there, and 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 then request uh, then uplink the new speeds for the new runway. And I'm like, but we're but those numbers don't apply to us anymore because those uplink speeds were when I originally uplinked, you know, the flight plan to the airplane. Mm-hmm. And that was when the dispatcher did his flight planning. So now that we're heavier than what the flight plan was planned at, we need to have new numbers. We need new TPS numbers. And he goes, no, no, no. You just, just uplink the, uh, the, the new runway speeds. And I looked at my, my, my seat filled check airman and I'm like, that's, that doesn't seem right to me. I said, I, I don't, I mean, if that's what you're telling me to do, I'm going to cooperate and graduate and just do what you <laughs> tell me to do. But yeah. I was like, I, I don't want to learn. I don't want to have a negative, um, you know, transfer of learning here. I want to make sure that I'm doing it right because, you know, this whole time reading the book and doing it on the seven three, this is what you do. You right. know, you, you get new numbers. And so the Chuck airman kind of looked over his shoulder and he's like, yeah, I th- he's he's right. We need to get new TPS numbers because we are heavier than two thousand pounds, which brings us above our assume. And so these guys just started going back and forth on the performance stuff and how to do it, where to get the numbers. And I just kind of sat back and just kind of listened in my left ear, waiting for them to come up with a re- resolution to <laughs> how we're supposed to do this. And and crazy enough, the speeds really only change by you know one or one. two knots anyway knot. <laughs> it's right yeah measuring it with a laser marking it with a grease pencil cutting it with an axe yeah but to fulfill you know the the performance review part you know 91 61 whatever it is uh 121 um certification you have to know your your performance for for that runway sure um and so since we didn't have it because we were outside of that weight window we needed to get a new one and Finally, after about 15, 20 minutes of this conversation, he's like, well, just go ahead and just use the uplink speeds because we, you know, we don't have time to go through all that other stuff. I'm like, and he's like, we'll talk about it again in the, in the, in the debrief. I'm like, all right, sounds good. Hi. <laughs> She's back. Uh, so, um, anyway, that was, uh, that was the beginning of the check ride or the beginning of that one event. So he was kind of. Every, uh, the, the guy running the show was kind of, I wouldn't say his cage was rattled, but he, he was thrown off his rhythm, so to speak. And then I, I didn't mention this in the pre-show, but also I guess this was a, uh, a fairly new event for this guy. Mm. So I, I guess he hadn't been doing this, uh, you know, this scenario um, very much. So he was, you know, trying to read it by a script and he may have, you know, over went past something or, or, yeah. or missed it. But anyway, so as we were, took off everything was fine started climbing i think it was out of boston and he needed us to level off at like five thousand feet and we had already climbed through five thousand feet and uh so he's like oh uh, level uh maintain five thousand so we <laughs> we were like okay leveling at six thousand descending back down to five thousand so we Leveled back, uh, descended back down to 5,000 feet, and everything is like, okay, now you're cleared to fly, uh, flight level 230. All right, fine. Open climb, flight level 230. Here we go. 
Start, uh, not uh, not open climb, uh, managed climb, climb to flight level 230. So we started climbing out 250 knots from 5,000. And as you go through 10,000 feet, normally with the, the planes, the way it's programmed, it'll start accelerating to its climb speed, um, and uh, which is faster than 250 knots. Usually goes to what, 290, whatever, yeah, 300 something? 300, 320, something, whatever. Yeah, whatever, whatever it's programmed to do for, yeah, the, sure. for the best climb speed. So we, we, we get through 10,000 and I'm looking, I'm like, this thing is not accelerating. It's still at 250 knots. And I looked at the, uh, the FCU. I'm like, well, I looked at my FMA. I'm like, we're not, we're not in selected speeds and, uh, we're in managed climb and managed speeds. This thing should be accelerating right now. So I looked over at my, my seat fill captain. I'm like, is there something that I'm missing here? It, you know, we're managed, everything's managed. Why is this airplane not accelerating past 250 knots? So he looks down at the box. He looks at the FMA, looks at the FCU, and he's like, I don't know why. It's not, he's like, I can't figure it out myself. And he starts hitting, you know, hit, goes to the prog. I think it's the prog page in the box, which tells you what, what mode you're in. Mm -hmm. And he goes, for some reason, it's in the descent mode. Hmm. And I'm like, well. Jesus, we should be climbing at least, you know. <laughs> so everybody's head kind of got a little wrapped around that for a little while. And they were like, he's like, oh. And I said, you know, we actually climbed through 5,000 feet, leveled off at six, and then descended back down to 5,000 because of the clearance. Would that have put the box back in a descent mode? And he goes, that's exactly what it was. Good catch. So he reprograms, recruises the box at whatever altitude we were at. And then we just kept climbing and, you know, put the, pl the plane went back into a climb mode, which then accelerated to whatever, 310 knots. Yeah. And so I'm like, geez, man, this, this check ride's going great right now. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh well, man, we're going to have a lot to talk about when we get to the But you're catching room. everything. So, I mean, you're, yeah, that's and that's great. exactly what he said. He's like, you know, that's, and, and, and that's how it is for pretty much every, every checking event, whether it's Roger, Tony, whatever airplane you fly, we use the, the uh, acronym and we use it in the, on the 175 at, at Sandpiper, CAMI. You know, confirm, activate, monitor, and intervene if you have to. So, you know, confirm what you're doing. You know, check with your uh, your your uh, your co-pilot. Make sure this is what you want, or this is what the clearance was. Activate it, and then monitor. You know, the aircraft systems and and you know navigation, and make sure it's doing what you wanted it to do. Yeah. And if it doesn't, you have to intervene and and do something different to get it to do what you want. So that's what we basically had to do the whole time. What's it doing? Yeah, and the crazy thing is, as you know, Tony, and you know, Roger, when you're in the training world, you don't spend much time above 5,000 feet, you know, in the simulator. So uh, everything's approaches, approaches, returning back, missed approach, holding. So you never really, you know, flex the airplane's capabilities above 10,000 feet and really, really see how the VNAV is going to work vertically, um, you know, accelerating and, 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 you know, you understand in theory and, you know, on the seven, three and, and, uh, the, uh, the, um, the 175, you know, all the, the VNAV stuff are, are cool. And I've seen it. I know how it works and I totally understand it. 
and you, you know with that knowledge you you know how the airbus is supposed to work now too because you just went through four weeks of training but you just haven't really seen it happen yeah you know so and then you're getting all these distractors with headings and holds and air speeds and all that stuff and you know next thing you know you get an ecam malfunction and you know you have to deal with that and you know you kind of get you can get pretty busy up there uh, especially with a new guy like me you, know, you can get what we call into the yellow pretty quick <laughs> you know, as long as you kind of i've learned i've learned to do the uh the airbus um kind of pace you know if something happens bing sit back take a puff of sip from your cigarette all right we got a generator two fault you know take another puff from your cigarette all right yeah that's not an immediate action or quick action or or a ecam exception all right who's gonna fly this one all right well you're doing good why don't you keep flying all right yeah you do that all right uh he's gonna talk on the radios all right you do that too all right hey, hey, take another Rob, you smoke pot <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> we just that's exactly about that. what i was thinking <laughs> it's french so you're you know i can't a cigarette i can't so. condone smoking because uh you know it's not allowed on the, on the flight deck you know well why do we have ashtrays <laughs> no just kidding well, it used to be <laughs> i've heard stories <laughs> i've seen some things <laughs> i've seen a thing oh, or two dun, 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 dun. No. Um, yeah, so anyway that was that and we landed <laughs> turned the airplane around had another malfunction diverted landed and uh as i landed pulled off to the unnamed taxiway in richmond because there was no sign saying you know this taxiway yankee or bravo cleared the runway i was like hey uh yeah tower is is uh mayday american seven you know, a 320 or whatever, just exited off of an unnamed taxiway. Uh, we're going to stop here and run a checklist. He's like, all right, Roger that. Just that, just as soon as that happened, the printer message came off the printer. Congrats. Welcome to the Airbus. Nice. So yeah, that was that. So yeah, it was fun. Exciting. I'm, I'm happy to get that behind me. Sorry for the long-winded story, but I was a little, little excited to share with you. Congratulations to Rob, Yay. the newest Thank of you. the Airbus pilots. Hoorah! <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so congratulations! I can't wait till to, you know, cross paths with you out on the flight line. Um, I am yeah, in man. Dallas now quite a bit, flying out of Ontario. So there's no reason why that can't happen. You got IOE coming up. Now the I do. initial operating experience. So you're you're a full fledged Airbus pilot. You have your FAA certificate, at least you're mm -hmm. temporary. And as we discussed, what two or three shows ago, your temporary is good for 120 days. And if you don't get it by right. 90 days, make sure you make some phone calls or go online and check the status. However, you've got this. You go out what next tomorrow? For uh, I did I did head out Friday tomorrow the uh, 23rd. My trip actually starts on Saturday the 24th with a, a two-leg uh, trip from Charlotte to Dallas, Dallas to Salt Lake City. So that's going to be perfect because, uh, you know, they're, they're long legs and um, you really get to ease into the operation. Uh, obviously, it's going to be my first time flying the real airplane outside of the simulator. 
Um, so just don't tell all those passengers that because I'm sure they'll freak out. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so that'll be uh, the first trip. And um, it's a four day trip. I only need 15 hours, but the uh, trip is scheduled for like 20, 21 or 22 hours. So I'll have plenty of time to uh, at least get the 15 hours. And that's the minimum. So obviously, if I if I don't meet or exceed the uh, Czech Airman's expectations or my <laughs> expectations, then uh, we could always add on more. But typically, 15 hours is all it's going to take. Nice. Yeah. Fire it up. Ready to do it. Ready so, to really put it to, to use. So at the airlines, we do this uh, initial operating experience. But in a Part 91 world, this doesn't exist. You, you get your type rating, and the ne very next day, you could go up. Let's go. Let's go by yourself. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Just just do it. And Roger, <laughs> do you, it. Last time you were on the show, we were talking about you had just completed a type rating in the uh, Falcon EZ, right? The Falcon 900 EZ, correct. The 900 EZ. Now, have you had a chance to fly that particular aircraft as a PIC since your type rating? No. The plane's actually not even around right now. Oh. It's um it's in its C check right now. Oh, okay. And so it won't be getting out for probably another month or so. Yeah. So I haven't even seen the airplane. Now you which have, we knew going into it. Yeah. Now you have flown since uh, our last show. You had the wedding, yes. you had that event that you went up and you got to do some rafting and which is super cool. Uh one of these days uh I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna take you up with me. We're gonna go do You're some put your life in my hands again. Absolutely. <laughs> 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 um and i look forward to that um but have what kind of flying have you been doing in the so interim for the for the last i don't know two or three weeks of, i haven't done a whole lot of flying i had that personal stuff in between has actually been more personally busy um in this little bit of flying break that i've had most of the stuff that i've done has been i think it's actually all been inner california um been go i've gone up up and back to Truckee a few times um i went to napa just yes no, two days ago nice. um a day trip to napa um so hung out up there for a day and other than that i'm sure i've done something else but now you're getting back a couple weeks it's it's been Truckee, multiple flights to Truckee and back so so when you leave uh gillespie early in the morning fly up to Truckee, and then the your clients I, obviously they have a car or what have you pick them up They're They're off on their own. Walk us through what you do. Once you park the aircraft, run your shutdown checklist, the customer leaves, what's involved from that point forward? <laughs> well, the, the interesting part of that question is you've kind of completely skipped all of the work that I do <laughs> um, because <laughs> all of the work that we do actually is figuring out what you're going to do once you park the airplane and put the parking brake on. Mm. So we'll kind of mm. back that up a little bit because unlike, you know, at the airlines, you have all the, all this, these personnel and departments that are going to do this stuff actually for you. Mm -hmm. um, and so in this case, the Truckee trip was actually a little bit interesting because I did some initial work. We we're going to be there for two nights. Actually, it's just going to be me. The other pilot was going to airline home because I had one pilot flying up with me and then another pilot was going to be going back. And so first thing is we got to figure out where we're going to stay. And then second step is how are we going to get to where we're going to stay? And so the, 
you know, the first thing I did was look at hotels. And in, in, in this case, the hotels were e extremely expensive. I have, in my case, I, I have family that's down in Sacramento, which is an hour and a half, 140 drive or so. And so I was like, well, I can maybe go down to Sacramento. I'll just, the hotels are only about, they were 25% of what they were going to be charging up in Truckee. Mm -hmm. Except then the problem was, how are we going to get there? And this process started five days prior to the trip, because when you're going into towns like this, especially Truckee in the last decade or so, is it's the Bay Area has inundated the area and it's a big tourist. Uh -huh. And so there's not the ho that's why the hotels are expensive. And then there were no cars. So I called up a car rental place and they didn't have anything. And then fortunately, they actually called me back about eight hours later and I grabbed a car. Hmm. And so what we did at, at that point, you know, we, we parked the airplane and we got the car and then we drove an hour and a half down to Sacramento and I dropped the other pilot off at the airport. And then I kind of started my layover, if you will, for a couple of nights uh, before then picking up the other pilot two days later and then driving all the way back up to Truckee to do that outbound flight. So it's kind of a little bit different, like, because the flying, flying the airplane for us is, is obviously our primary job, but we have other primary jobs as well yeah. because we got it. We're responsible for all the logistics. And then obviously once you start doing the international stuff that only, you know, increases by a factor of, of two or three. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It, it, yeah. We take that for granted. I think for those that, you know, went from, yeah either the military to the airlines or from, you know, flying flight instruction to a regional and then to a major, we never really see that portion, all the logistics, like you said, uh, that are involved. Yeah. And, you know, that's always something that's been so interesting to me. And I've always said this every time we get together, man, you, you work way too hard. <laughs> when yeah. it's kind of, you know, even <laughs> while we've been sitting here for, you know, a couple hours now, I've gotten multiple text messages and emails that I need to get back to <laughs> that are coming in. Most of it all international related because those responsibilities without, you know, the 121, I mean, whole departments that are responsible for doing that, you know, yeah. it's, it's just us. And so I've got some work to do as soon as we get off of that, you know, kind of for that kind of stuff as well. And it's just wow. like the, there, the logistics, especially depending on where you're going can get somewhat. Complex. So let me ask, let me ask you a question when you're, when you're thinking about these things, cars, hotels, things like that. Um, and I guess you'd also have to cater the airplane for the, uh, and we're responsible yeah. for the catering if that's Yeah, so you have to think about that, where you're going to get all that. What what kind of parameters do you guys uh, do you set or do you have anything set for hotels, rental cars? I mean, if you show up and they don't have any, you know, economy cars, are you guys regulated to like a compact or I mean, you know, stuff like that. A hotel, can it be a five-star hotel or it's does it have to be a moving target? You know, you know we okay. have we have general guidelines that we that we are supposed to stick within. And like my, mm -hmm. my personal policy, um, which I think has kind of allowed me some freedom, but it's basically, you know, I try and stay within that framework. And if I can't, I'm going to go and I'm going to get permission or I'm going to say, Hey, look, this is what's going on. And then I'll get permission because there are times, you know, obviously if these people are now the permission, these, does it come from the, from the owner? I know I go, I follow the chain of command for lack of better terms. Okay. Yeah, you know, yeah. I go to our quote unquote chief pilot, director of operations, whatever you want to call okay. him. Yeah. Um, and then he can go and he can give me the A or an A or, and he can go talk to the owners. I tip, I do not go to the owners. I follow. I sure. Just, no, I understand. I yeah. don't need to get into the office politics, if you will. Yeah. 
Um, but I'll get the okay from our director of operations and because he's the one that he in the end kind of pays all the bills and passes that on to the to the owners. Um Mm. you know, and for the most I've never had a problem with it because I think for the most part that that the owners realize that when they're operating, you know, with multi-million dollar budgets for this airplane, even if I end up having to get a hotel at five hundred dollars a night, in the end, that's not going to get noticed, you know, a a few times a year. Um but I always, you know, I always respect the fact and remember that I am employed by these people and sure. I am, I'm spending their money. And if I'm yeah. going to spend their money, I want to actually, you know, be respectful, responsible of, yeah. and respectful of the fact that, that even though I charge, I mean, tens of thousands of dollars, you know, that's not my money and be responsible and respectful of that. So that that brings up another question for me. When you refill the air, refuel the airplane, what's the biggest uh, price tag you've seen on a on a fill up? And and because because I, I don't know, I, I you know Tony, I don't know if you know. I, yeah, what's the going rate? I haven't knows? put any gas in an airplane since two thousand five, so and, and I don't that's know. That's another thing that, from a logistics standpoint, how to get around some of that. You know, uh-huh. we have. Uh, we're actually a member of something called CAA's Corporate Aircraft Association, uh-huh. and we, when we're planning out, there are specific airports and FBOs at specific airports that have a much better fuel rate, and so we always try to hit, hit, hit those up at mm-hmm. the places where that that where they are not um, a member of CAA. Then we are going to try and get some contract fuel in some places. There is not contract fuel, and we try and tanker fuel, and all of that is done, you know, prior. Yeah. Um, mm. Unfortunately, Napa being an example, I tankered fuel because fuel up there was over six fifty a gallon. So when you decide to tanker it yourself. I mean, those are part of the logistic make, things that you have to decide. I make decide. the decision to tanker it on my okay. own. Typically, um, you have a lot get, of decisions going on. There's right there. a lot of decisions that yeah. are going on. You know, especially when you first start, as you as you kind of go, you'll learn where you got to watch out for. Um, sure. But that is something that you're going to need to look up and kind of verify before you go, because the last thing I want to do is end up having to answer a question. Okay, well, I mean, you can go to places where fuel is $7 plus a gallon. And when you're talking about putting, you know, anywhere between 300 and 1300 gallons of fuel, you know, that's a huge difference. Yeah. You know, typically we're spending about $4 a gallon now. Fuel's gone up. I don't know if you guys are even aware of it no we don't back up when i first started a year ago we were probably playing on an average we were probably playing close to maybe 325 a gallon it's probably gone up to 375 to four dollars a gallon now on an average across the entire you know operation Mm. um but you go to some places international big international airports if i were to fly into dfw you really got to be careful of those Uh, Lindbergh, i mean they'll charge eight dollars a gallon wow yeah and now you're talking a difference of four dollars a gallon, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna be the one that's gonna have to explain that. Yeah, double the yeah. cost. Yeah, seven dollars yeah. a gallon is probably the biggest one that I've that I've had Same. to do. But again, you've you've tried to mitigate that, and okay, maybe I only got to put three hundred gallons on and get a twenty one hundred dollar fuel bill. But that three hundred gallons isn't gonna go more than you know an hour's flight either. 
$2,100 just out the tailpipe. There it goes. <laughs> Pretty quick. Wow. And all of a sudden, that yeah. $500 a night hotel room doesn't seem quite so bad. Yeah, yeah. it's not so bad. But again, it's that fiduciary <laughs> responsibility that I, you know, I try and go, no matter who I'm yeah. applying for um, at any job. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of things that are going on before the flight leaves. But if, in our operation, it's, it's, it's a little weird. And, you know, in our operation, most of my work is done. By the time I show up at the airplane and start the APU, most of my job is done. Then it's the easy part. And then it's just flying the airplane. You guys, that's all you, that's yeah. all you guys. We only do the fun doing. stuff and complain about yeah. everything. <laughs> right. Yeah. Everything else is already there. <laughs> so there is definitely a, a big difference there, but a lot of sure. it is pre is pre trip planning on, on multiple fronts. Yeah. Wow. Now that's cool, and, man. And you mentioned, you know, tankering fuel and having to always have consideration to what your flight planning is going to be for the day or for the week. Do you ever deal with? I know we mentioned earlier cost index. Uh, cost index on the Airbus is something that can be adjusted. Usually, the the flight planning dispatcher uh, will put a cost index on the aircraft uh, anywhere from one to ninety nine. Uh, lately we've been seeing cost indexes of three because <laughs> they're trying wow. to save fuel. So, uh, but m most of the time you see a cost index of like 20 or 30. Uh, and all that is, is it's the, tells the flight management system, uh, how to save fuel, uh, maybe climb out at a different rate or a different speed so you get up to altitude faster so that and then maybe have your cruise speed be a little bit lower maybe seven six instead of eight two uh so the cost index is adjusted per flight and we for a time we're not allowed to manipulate that and if we did we had to have a good reason like is the flight late are you trying to make up time trying to get the people there on time so you can manipulate it now they say okay you can manipulate it if it's in an effort to for safety of flight or for weather or for trying to get people there on time if you're behind schedule. Um, but for the most part, they want you to stick to the predetermined cost index of the aircraft. With that said, since you guys are operating on a Part 91 for clients, is it always go, 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 get there as quickly as you can? Or do you also consider fuel burn and the efficiency of a flight and maybe dial it back a little bit so there's a couple different thoughts that go into that um the general answer to your question is no we go fast we'll go eight three to eight five pretty much anywhere unless we need to conserve fuel for the length of the length of the flight part of the reason for that and and this i don't know how the airlines work it but part of the reasons is is that it's not all about fuel because you know, for a couple of different reasons. Number one, we only fly, you know, a tiny fraction of the amount of flights that a big airline does. If you look at, you know, if you're going to save, you know, maybe 50, 50 gallons of fuel on a flight, maybe 50, maybe 100, depending on the length of it, you know, 50 gallons for, 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 for anybody is not all that much. But when you take it by the sheer amount of flights, 50 gallons of flight for what? one of the big legacy airlines does is a huge amount of money. Yeah. 50 gallons of flight for what we do is not nearly as much just because we don't do nearly as much of it. So that's number one. And number two, and this was what I don't know what the airlines do is we pay for engine reserves and engine maintenance. 
We pay a rather substantial amount of money every single hour that that engine is running. So the faster we go, we actually are going to save money on engine maintenance because we pay we pay hourly. Yeah, it's actually about it's a little over two thousand dollars an hour in an wow. engine um, an engine maintenance. That's for both of them. Whoa! Actually, it's for all wow. all three of them: the APU and the and the two engines. Wow. So if we actually fly faster, we're actually saving money on what's called the MSP program. And so you're actually got a little cost benefit, you know, analysis, no matter which way you go, fuel is cheap compared to the operating costs of those engines. And so go fast. Yeah. Uh-huh. And because it's cool. Yeah. And it's cool. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. cool. <laughs> so yeah, we, nice. we typically go eight, three, I, and I only go, I'd go eight, five if I could, except in that particular, in the 2000 that I normally fly doesn't have auto throttles. And so if I'm trying to go eight, five, right at the, right at the top, you're constantly manipulating. Kind of, yeah. Manipulating. So I don't get the, the ding, ding, ding for the oversteep. So I give myself <laughs> a little buffer at eight, three. There you go. Oh, excellent. Nice. Well, you know, we talked about doing pre-flights and finding issues with the aircraft before or after a flight. Uh, pre-flights are absolutely crucial. We've been toting that line now for years here on the show. Uh, but one of the most important tools that any pilot can have in their arsenal resides usually in their kit bag. And that is a very good flashlight for a walk around. Now, over the years and over the decades, I've seen everything from D-cell mag lights to little pen lights and little keychain LED lights, and now even people using the flashlight on their cell phone. And granted, <laughs> cell phone flashlights are relatively bright nowadays, but there's a standard that the companies that we work for usually like to see. And that standard is usually some kind of torch light that can illuminate the outside of the aircraft enough for you to do a thorough pre-flight. Now that is a very open-ended, you know, open for (laughs) interpretation uh, thing. Now they're not regulating what kind of flashlight, how many lumens it has to have, all these, you know, nice little bells and whistles. But what I've discovered uh, about 10 years ago, I ordered online a flashlight. It was like a tactical flashlight. It wasn't anything big deal, but it was made out of metal and it had a USB charging port. So the batteries that it came with, the nickel cadmium batteries were rechargeable, which meant I didn't have to worry about lugging around batteries all the time. Mm-hmm. I could just plug it in on a layover and in the morning it would be charged. And depending on how many night flights I operated that month, I'd have to charge it maybe once or twice. Um, I've since, you know, purchased a few more flashlights along the way. But every single time, my criteria is two things. Has to be a rechargeable uh, flashlight, so I don't have to sit there and buy batteries. And I like the flashlights that have a focused head on them, um, that I am looking at the tail of the aircraft. I can focus the head and make more of a beam and kind of shoot the light up to the tip of the horizontal or the vertical stabilizers. And then when I am down low and I'm looking at like wheel well, for example, I just spin the head and now I've got a wide angle beam and it illuminates a a wider area. 
It's a softer light, and I can take a look and can see any kind of damage or leaks are much easier to find. And there really doesn't need to be a high ticket cost on these flashlights. You can buy the Surefire for a hundred plus dollars, but everything I've always purchased is under 20 bucks and I'm perfectly happy with it. Roger, what do you use for your pre-flight on your corporate jets? I saw you were. I use, I use two. I, use, I have two flashlights. I use the one from the airplane oh. and I got my cell phone. There you go. There you go. Two bisted. <laughs> Same time. Same time. That's what most people do, right? <laughs> now, typically, uh, we, I, we don't fly at night all that often. I do use my cell phone, actually, uh, for the flashlight. Uh, don't use the air. Don't use the one from the airplane. You're not supposed to do that. Yeah, if it's emergency equipment. Yeah, if it's emergency <laughs> equipment, if your aircraft yeah. deems the flashlight that's on the flight deck or in the cabin as emergency equipment, don't use it. Don't use it. Don't use uh, it. Um, uh, if it's not emergency it equipment, then okay. I think it is probably better, generally, especially if you're flying at night regularly, to actually have a, a decent flashlight. We just don't fly at night all that often. It's, I mean, pretty much almost never in the summertime i'm not gonna lie I, I, the, the, I use the cell phone and and like you said at the beginning those actually do do work pretty well except for the really high up surfaces but yeah. i mean really i don't think that a flashlight's going to help me see all that much better anyway yeah um, for, for something that far away well your aircraft is not that tall i mean you're pretty it's much it's not as tall yeah it's not nearly as tall as your guys is either yeah. i mean it's it's a fairly substantial size but nothing near the size of um of what you guys are flying yeah and rob what about yourself do you have the uh five cell d cell mag light that weighs 50 pounds no yeah yeah the six double d battery ones no i just sent you a link to the one i use it's uh called the olight um it's really cool. I got it. I got it for as a gift for Christmas from my family, and it's literally, you know, four inches or so, tiny, 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 rechargeable LED, very powerful. I mean, blinding. <laughs> it's incredible how powerful it is. But it, the the nice thing is that it's so tiny, and it has a little shirt clip on it, which you know I don't use it on my shirt, but when I put it in my bag, it just it it you know, just sits perfectly in, in one of the little compartments. And, you know, you rarely, you know, I, char I maybe have to charge it every three or four months because you don't use it that much like you guys talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and even as the charge, the battery level goes down, um, it'll, it won't let you go into the brightest setting. So it'll go down to like the medium setting. But even at the medium setting, it's really bright, and I forget how many lumens it says it is. Which yeah, is I just looked it up actually. Uh, it's uh, pretty bright. The S one R two O light black mm -hmm. bundle and a thousand lumens. Yeah, yeah that's pretty good for yeah. a little light. Has a beam distance of over four hundred and seventy six feet. It's got mm -hmm. a magnetic USB charging base. Yeah. Um, max light intensity is five thousand two hundred and fifty candela mm -hmm. whatever that yep. means um <laughs> and it's a high performance cw led yeah. with tir optic lenses that's a pretty yeah. pretty nifty light you got there i think yeah, that's not LED bad lights have really 
you know, they use a lot like a, a lot less electricity, so you can get that easy charging capability. But also, yeah, it's come a long way. Yeah, yeah. And, and like Tony said, it has a magnetic bottom to it. So if there's like, like I'm working on my car or whatever, you can like boom, stick it to the, you know, the hood of the car, and it stays there. And then with the clip, if you you put on your hat if you're working, or you know, if you lose all the lights in the cockpit for some reason, you can just put it on your headset um, frame, and then it'll wherever you look, it'll light it up but it works pretty good man yeah i got this uh little handheld job here and uh you know it's amazon yeah, that's sweet yeah, made that's made cool. in china probably who knows um but yeah it's got the adjustable yeah magnetic on Local it beam i think it's about 800 lumens i mean it's pretty bright it'll blind anyone and it's got the push button on off on the back it's, it's allegedly tactical but it's not sharpened but anyway um, nice. And this little he thing uses his flashlight more than the rest of us combined, though. Yes, you know, Rob, I know. With yes. our red eyes, uh, red eye flights. Dude. Yeah. And, and if you're looking for a flashlight and you're on the Airbus, just uh, before you sit in the seat, recline it all the way and stick your hand in the crack between the seat and the and the back. I guarantee there's at least one or two flashlights crack? down there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the compartment. Okay. Lean no, your seat no, back the... and just stick your hand down the crack. <laughs> That's, I was like, I'm, should I'm I wear, not sure if that's should if I wear gloves before I do that. Well, um, should I ask permission? You, or I would wear gloves. <laughs> so the seat, the seat back reclines on the Airbus. Yes. And a lot of people put their flashlight in their back pocket after they're done with their post flight. <laughs> and what happens is as soon as you sit down, the flashlight gets it falls out. out of the pocket and it land it goes in between the seat cushion and the seat mm -hmm. back. And there's like right. a little, if you lean the seat all the way back, there's like a little exposes it, exposes it. And you can stick your hand in there. And I guarantee you there's going to be a flashlight in there. I've turned in so many flashlights in a lost and found. It's not even funny. Um, <laughs> this one here, the, uh, the Lux pro, it's my backup. And this one's a little narrower. It's a little skinnier. Um, mm -hmm. and this one is, doesn't not as fancy as the other one, my primary. And it, it has like a, uh, low, medium, and high setting on it. But same nice. idea, really nice flashlight. Yeah. Uh, this one does not have rechargeable. This is just a plain old flashlight. That's why it's my backup. But yeah, um, a good flashlight is, is key to find those little popped rivets that we were talking about. Yeah, yeah. And he, yeah, and that's something we actually were trained to do in the military during, uh, we, whenever we did inspections is to use a high powered flashlight because you can you see deficiencies better or you know de defects better especially when you're inspecting a uh, intake fan blades and rotors and stators uh you'd be amazed how much you miss without a good good flashlight lighting up the uh you know the focused area excuse me captain i know this may sound silly but can you fly nope never had lessons you know, recently on a lot of the forums that uh, that we're on for work uh, online, a lot of groups, you know, first officers that have created a page for legacy airlines and, you know, pilots in general. There's a page just for captains. There's a there's a page just for the cool kids, you know, and, and so there's a page for everything. And lately there's been a debate on sunshades. Mm. What kind of sunshades do you use on the flight deck? Do you use sunshades or do you prefer sunglasses? Do you use sunglasses or do you prefer wearing a baseball cap? And <laughs> so we wanted to kind of just scratch the surface on a debate here. 
on what's the best thing to use. Now, I guess it depends on your equipment and what your company yeah. provides. Our company doesn't provide anything other than what is built into the aircraft uh, in terms of a sunshade, which if any Airbus pilot can tell you is a very small piece of plastic that's been tinted that is adjustable and you can set adjust it in the flight deck to keep the sun out of your eyes now sunglasses on a flight deck that's like a glass cockpit in you know in in out there in a narrow body aircraft kind of hard to focus on the instrumentation because what happens is the sunshades work great when you're looking outside, but the minute you adjust and look inside, everything just got darker. And mm -hmm. to top it off, we even have regulations that state that we should not be wearing any kind of polarized sunglasses because they'll black out some of the instrumentation. Yeah. So polarized glasses are out. Good luck finding sunglasses that are not polarized, that don't just darken the shit out of everything. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. sunglasses versus baseball hat. Now, we were talking about wearing sunscreen on the flight deck. It does get bright up there. We are at higher elevations, so the intensity of the UV light is much stronger. And even though the, the glass of the aircraft, including the passenger cabin, they're all UV coated, but you're still going to get sunburn. You're still going to get exposure, and you're still... Yeah going to need to protect your eyes. Yeah. I personally carry around some of those expandable sunshades that just stick to the glass and you oh, can you see through yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. Um mine were like 12 bucks on Amazon and uh, I love them. They're small. They're smaller than, than what they would be like in a, a vehicle. You can see through them and all they're doing is they're blocking out some of the light and I can adjust them around the flight deck, whether that's the side window or the front window. Now, clearly, I don't use anything below 18,000 feet because we're dealing with traffic and we're not in RVSM airspace yet. So I just kind of grin and bear it until I get to altitude. And then I set up my nest and put the sunshades around. Mm -hmm. and, and I have enough to share. I usually, if the captain didn't, doesn't have anything, most of the time the captain has something, whether that's a chart that they put up which I don't really recommend because <laughs> that captain's really captain's atlas, the captain's atlas. That's what it's for. <laughs> right. Um, to block the sun, but you yeah. can't see through that. Um, some people yeah. just have car sunshades, the kind you put on your dash when you park your car. Mm -hmm. Again, you can't really see through that. Um, so what do you use Rob? Well, uh, for optics, uh, because I wear glasses, um, I have, um, what do you call them? Transition lenses mm -hmm. on here. So these, these turn colors. However, um, as anybody who owns transition lenses knows, um, they don't, you know, they don't darken unless they're in direct sunlight. Mm -hmm. So in, in a cockpit, um, where it's really bright and you're looking outside, and it's really bright. The lenses do tint a little bit, but not enough to be considered sunglasses in the cockpit. Um, so, um, I, I, I have a, I, I've just got a new prescription because I just had my eye exam in, in May. Um, and I do own a pair of s prescription sunglasses. They're Oakley's um, and they have a uh, orange tint to them. And I, I personally, I prefer the, uh, the, I don't even know if it's called the orange tint, but the, the lenses that have the, the orange colored tint as opposed to like to the gray tint. Mm. Um, for me, it just the fidelity is much clearer. Um, 
and and the reason why is when I first started flight training, um, I asked somebody about sunglasses, and the first thing that they said was Serengeti sunglasses. Oh, the lenses are really good, and and you know, and, and then I asked another pilot, "What do you recommend?" Uh, Serengetis. I was like, "Wow, that seems to be a common thread." And you figure you hear Ray Ban, Oakley, or stuff like that, and and those do come up, and those are really good glasses too. Um, I actually have a pair of Ray-Bans that I wear normally just when I'm out um, driving around or even in my boat. And those are polarized. But in the airplane, like you said, you don't want polarized lenses. And Serengeti specialize in non-polarized lenses. So these things were great. But the one thing that was so awesome for me was when you put these glasses on, they had the orange tint to them. It seemed like everything just turned high definition all of a sudden. The fidelity was just so clear and when you're flying around and you got all these glares and the and the, the you know the clouds you, the, they have uh all of a sudden the clouds have contrast to them so you know the dark and the clouds are darker and the lights are lighter but they're just very clear and i almost relate it to like having a massage for your eyeballs i say that's what it feels like if your mas- eyes were to get a massage this is what it feels like um so when i got prescription sun- sunglasses i tried to um, mimic that Serengeti look because I had the gray sunglasses and those work pretty good, but I didn't experience the overall satisfaction of having those orange tint. So that's my personal thing. But I was going to say one thing that's really, really apparent now to me going from the 7.3 to the Airbus are the windscreens are much bigger on the Airbus. Yeah. Um, on the 7.3, they were really the, the, the front, uh, the front and the side were really small. Yeah. So <laughs> we used to just keep um, passenger briefing cards up there on the sun deck, oh. uh, on, the, <laughs> on, the, on the flight deck. Yeah. And we'd use that as a sun visor. And we'd still have a, a regular sun visor that would close down and uh, a come down and, and you know, it'd be the uh, the one you see through. It's like a tinted tinted piece of plastic that you look through. But we really didn't have to carry anything on the 7.3 because mm. – um, again, RVSM airspace, we, you know, it's much better time to use it because now your separation is, is more controlled and climbing through non RVSM. So we wouldn't put it up until we get an RVSM, but that was usually adequate. The card would cover the whole front windshield. We'd have a little bit of manipulation and then we'd have side screens that we'd put up and those are normally were adequate for, uh, for that too. So I, I'm, I'm going to have to see how the Airbus is. I'll probably have to do what you're uh, talking about there by a pair of those sticky. Uh, and some guys did have that on the 7.3. They had the, you know, it was like window tint that, yeah. <laughs> that stuck to the glass and you just, you know, spread it out, boom. And then when you're done, you just peel it off. And peel it off and it wash up. it with some warm water in your sink Soap, if it gets yeah. dirty. Yeah, these are the, uh, I don't know if you can see this. These are yeah, the, I do. the little pop-ups oh yeah right and so i have that, and something you, like that in my car you peel them uh yeah see so that's plastic on nice. the side that sticks and this side is like a cloth oh yeah okay I like and, that. and it's see-through yep i see you <laughs> um and so and i've got two sets of these so it's four total and yep. what i'll usually do is you know the side roll up um plastic that's on the what we used to call the dv window or the side window mm-hmm. uh, those are pretty adequate but if you have the sun blaring through i always put one of these behind it and mm. adds 
Another thing, yeah. another thing that I've seen a lot of pilots do, and I try to always have them with me, is have some binder clips yeah. in the bottom of your bag. Uh, mine are actually attached to my mini miniature logbook. I don't have that within reach right now, but the binder clips work great because what you can do is you can, uh, that little, the sun visor that's attached to the aircraft that you can use obviously is not enough when you're staring at the sun and you know, you're, you're traveling east in the morning or west in the evening. You don't want the sunlight blaring in your eyes. So you put the visor down and then you take the QRC, the quick reference mm -hmm. card, and you can binder clip it to this visor and then it can adjust it. And it acts kind of like what your um, emergency cards were on the 7.3. Obviously, yeah. you can't prop them in the front glass of an Airbus because it's such a big window because it's, it's yeah. angled. Um, so what I usually do is I'll use the binder clips with the QRC attached to the sun visor and then I'll adjust it and it'll block out the light just fine. So I'm not carrying around a bunch of extra stuff. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Now the baseball hat was something that I picked up when I was based in Los Angeles back in Sandpiper days because every landing after three o'clock in the afternoon is going to be into the sun reflecting off the Pacific Ocean. So mm. wearing sunglasses, they're going to obviously make your instrumentation dark because your eyes have adjusted because you've got a big ball of burning gas right in front of you, um, causing you to have to squint and try to see an airport. So what I would do is I'd put on a baseball hat and now I would just keep my head down so that the hat bill acted as a sun visor. I can it's almost like fog, the, the, the hood. Like foggles, <laughs> yeah. Flight training, yeah, fog, the hood, yeah. The hood. So I would, you know, look at the instrumentation, and then I'd need to look up. I'd look up to the runway, and the bill of the hat would block just enough of the horizon to where I didn't have the reflection of the sun on the ocean in front of me. And I could just look up at the runway and then look back down at the instrumentation. So exactly like like a hood. Um, and, and I sometimes carry that around with me. I've lately, since I've gotten these uh, sun visors, I don't carry it around anymore, the little baseball hat. Mm -hmm. Because there are, depending on the company you work for, they say you're not allowed to wear that because it limits your view of the overhead panel. Mm. So Yeah. And that's something I learned too. That overhead panel is way up there. Yep. I mean, it goes way back. <laughs> yep. Yep. And it's so, not illuminated at night. No, it isn't. No. So uh, the overhead panel that is above your head is. Oh, okay. But, but the, the, but the, the circuit breaker, the circuit breaker panel, the one that's behind you that goes way back. 49 VU panels. The 49 yeah. VU. Yeah, that's not illuminated. And unlike uh, the Embraer that you can use a flashlight to flashlight. activate the, what is it? The iridescence. Luminescent light. Luminescence. Iridescence, yeah. yeah. Incan yeah. Um, this doesn't what have that. <laughs> doesn't have that. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, okay. So you just got to illuminate it with uh, your light flashlight with or your something. Fla yeah, you just have to. And some of the, some of the Airbuses have a flashlight on the flight deck that's accessible mm -hmm. to each pilot. Um, and some do not. Mm. So it's, uh, I think some of them are on the back panel near the fire extinguisher and some of them are one on each side. But again, that's emergency equipment. You really shouldn't be using that unless right. you have an emergency. Right on. 
Yeah. Well, we've cool had stuff. A, we've had a wonderful show today. Um, you know, yeah. I, I just want to say thank you to you guys. Before we wrap it up, I was wondering if any of you have seen any films lately uh, in relation to aviation. I just watched the the Sully movie the other day, just so it's a rerun. Just happened to be on while I was studying. I was like, oh, this is perfect Airbus training right about now. <laughs> Let's see how he did it. Um, but no, I actually haven't seen uh, any aviation-related movies in, in the past couple uh, weeks, unless, you know, you consider Sully uh, doing, you know, rerun being the... Uh, watching a new movie i think i told you about that other one though right was it F flight um no 70 7500 did you oh, watch yeah, that 7500 i did watch that one yeah. i think we talked about yeah. it um yeah it was a little frustrating to yeah. watch uh it wasn't very <laughs> realistic in any way shape or form the, the cockpit and the flows was nice to see uh, yeah that was neat accurately being depicted um and it was a psychological thriller with the guy's yeah. wife yeah. slash girlfriend, whatever, as the flight attendant that was, yeah. you know, inevitably going to be in danger. And he was going to mm. open the cockpit door and come on, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not but, very. Uh, yeah. That was pre-September 11th. That could have been what it was like. Yeah. <laughs> but this is, this is a yeah. post, this was a, like a post 9-11 yeah. Thing because they had yeah. the flight deck door and the cameras and all that stuff in place. Yeah. And sure. Yeah, yeah. Recently, my family and I sat down and watched uh, the movie Flight Plan with Jodie Foster. This mm. is a, a movie that came out in 2005. It is a German American psychological thriller mystery filmed, uh, was directed by Robert Schwenke. Schwenke? Uh, I don't know. Um, I had seen the the previews for this over the years, but I never really sat down to watch it. And we decided, well, let's take a look. Um, yeah, it's a <laughs> Netflix movie. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone out to the theater to see this. And if so, I would have been disappointed. It's not really a film about aviation. The aircraft is fake. You know, it's like, Oh, this new jet and this new jumbo jet. And, mm. and it's a movie where recently widowed, um, character played by Jodie Foster who worked for the airline or not the airline, but the, the manufacturer of this new jumbo jet um, has quit and her and her young daughter are traveling and they get on this red eye flight in the middle of the night and they're the first ones to board the aircraft and somewhere in the middle of the flight, she nods off and her daughter goes missing and no one can find her and the Dude. murder mystery uh, begins begins um <laughs> it was entertaining uh just the aviation aspect of it was just that an aspect of the plot um mm. yeah and and i love the computer room <laughs> and oh, the yeah. nose of the aircraft there's no radar on this aircraft it's just a big <laughs> hollow nose it's like a dr evil uh, layer <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just it just was so bad it was it was uh, not realistic in terms of aircraft and flight and stuff 
But it was almost like they uh, they should have hired an aviation consultant to be like, "Hey would, guys, you, you know, let's think. make this a little more realistic." Yeah, the, 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 all the space in the server room and the crawl spaces, and it's yeah. like, yeah, it's like, is this in a building? Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but entertainment, entertaining film, not my favorite. Uh, I'd give no. it two two and a half stars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's how they are sometimes. You know, and we want to know also what you think out there, the listeners, uh, what are, what are some of your favorite aviation films? Who knows? Maybe you have one that we haven't seen yet and we'd love to, yeah. to give it a try. Definitely. Definitely. I can't wait for the top gun, this, you know, two to come out. I, they've been putting that thing off for forever and I've seen the, you know, the trailer. Yeah. It just looks, yeah, I'm just excited because it was such a good movie you know, back in whatever, 1986, I think when it first came out and, uh, you know, me and my good friends were, were all, you know, getting ready to go into the, uh, aviation business, uh, you know, getting out of high school and stuff. So, um, you know, obviously probably one of the greatest recruiting tools for the U S Navy at the time, but, um, you know, and, and, and then also, you know, I think I, I, I talked about this earlier in earlier podcasts, you know, whenever you make a sequel, you know, it's, you really have to do a good job at it. Cause if the first movie was just legendary, you know, you, it, you don't want to ruin it with a sequel and, and not meet the expectation of the, of the fan base, you know? So, Very true. Yeah. So, you, you know, there's going to be a lot of pilots watching this movie and they're going to have, you know, their critique, sunglasses on and you know they're going to be very super critical over um you know how this movie was uh produced and everything of course you know tom cruise did it and um i i know that they they use actual flying seat scenes in the movie so it's going to be uh it's pretty true to life i guess you know it's still going to be a movie but yeah i've <laughs> seen quite a bit good. of the uh the documentary footage on the making of yeah. and i guess yeah. uh, tom cruise was insistent that all the key playing actors uh physically right. were being filmed yeah. in the cockpit of these jet fighters pulling g forces because he said that the g forces on the face and body can never be simulated uh exactly. accurately so um, it was stress his, and everything that yeah, they're experiencing. Exactly the the contortions to the skin and face, and so it was through his insistence that the director and the producers agreed to have this footage uh, done in an accurate depiction of what it's yeah. like to fly an air an air fighter aircraft in these mm-hmm. scenarios. Um, and I also understand that uh, Mr. Cruz would fly his P-51 Mustang to the set. <laughs> oh, really? Daily. Just yeah, show fly. off. He just, yeah, fly in. Ah, flew in my P-51. Yeah. yeah. Where's my motorcycle? Off, I am. <laughs> Assistant, where's my motorcycle? That's right. <laughs> his exploits are legendary. Oh. 
Say, so you guys want to go play volleyball after this? Take off her shirts or something, maybe? Go take a shower? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You get on that. <laughs> well, so, uh, yeah, very much looking forward to it. Yeah, the release date's been pushed back to uh, either after Thanksgiving or Christmas. I know that's been pushed back yeah. many, many, many times, and uh, they're just waiting for, I guess, the right, the right time, time yeah. uh, to, to do yeah, it. Because I know initially there, you know, it came out during when COVID was just starting to take stride and all the movie theaters were closed down. And for a big, you know, movie like this, you want to make sure everybody can get out there and see it and, well, you know. Well, it's one make, of the uh, highest uh, revenue costing uh, mm-hmm. films and that now they need to make their money back, right? So Yeah, totally. For sure. Well, what I wanted to uh, wrap up the show with was some more feedback. We got some customer feedback. Cool, man. I like this stuff. This Um, is good. Hey, I was so excited to receive this. Um, This one came in the other day from someone at uh, Sigley Lewis, uh, one of our Icelandic listeners. He says, hey, guys, first of all, love your show. It's the best. I'm a new listener, but I heard you guys talk about some friends in Iceland. That is awesome. I work for Center Cargo as a center cargo agent at Airport Assistance, an airline service in Keflavik, Keflavik wow. Airport, uh, but aiming for a flight school soon, though I am 39 years old. Never too late, right? All right, Never. keep rocking that podcast, man. We love to have some response here. I'll get right back to you on that. Take care from Siggy. Now, Siggy, yes, absolutely. We love the feedback. Thank you so much. Good luck on your uh, flight training. Uh, really excited Definitely. to hear that you're starting on this adventure. Uh, last time we had friends of the Squawk Ident podcast on was back on flight 49 of the Squawk Ident podcast, Vikings Take Flight, where we mm-hmm. interviewed uh, Sibi and Runar, our friends from Iceland. We talked about their journey. They made it all the way over to their legacy carrier over there in Iceland. And then the pandemic hit and they both got furlough notices. Uh, Sibby recently posted a a wonderful photo of he and his family out on a little vacation there in Iceland. And he had the most rocking beard I have seen on a Viking, man. (laughs) I think those guys grow beards like like I grow weeds in my garden, man. (laughs) It's amazing how how fast their facial hair grows. I'm telling you, man. And he's like, where's the dragon? (laughs) So yeah, hopefully we can catch up with uh, Sibby and Runar soon. And to our loyal listeners and the feedback, thank you so much. And uh, Siggy, Thank you for sending that in. Um, absolutely love receiving it and hope to hear more about your journey as well. Yeah, best of luck, Siggy. Thanks for the, uh, thanks for the uh, feedback. We really appreciate it. I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you to Rob, Roger, and even Kyle for joining us last week and you know, coming on this journey with us. As Flight 84 is starting its final descent into the virtual airport, we here at Squawk Ident just want to say thanks for coming along on this adventure. Please help us out. Make sure to subscribe and follow to the Squawk Ident podcast. Please spend just a moment and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to the show. We appreciate your support, especially your feedback. You can send us audio feedback and comments via our website at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha Victor, the number eight, Romeo Tango, Oscar November Yankee.com. There you can also find audio archives, photos from the flight line, our Squawk Ident pilot shop, the guest book photo tab, and you can also contribute to the show financially right there from the homepage. 
And if you can do it, hey, five bucks, that would really help out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it helps out you know, with cost. Absolutely. Uh, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram users can also find us under the Squawk Ident podcast. And a big final thank you to Rob and Roger for joining me today. And a big thank you to you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there. Be safe and take care of each other. Hey, guys, it's been a wonderful show. Thanks, guys. See ya. See ya. Take care, everyone. Bye, thanks.